0: Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room. Collaborate live, building ideas on the same page. And see more of your team on screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams.
1: Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroth, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
2: Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been... Incredibly influential in human history, from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water, to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities. Eventually, having plumbing, uh, the way that it changed sanitation, uh, irrigation, and what is the what's the future? Of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, Gali, who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am super excited about this episode four. This is this one's one of my favorites. I'm a little partial because we talk about a lot of stuff that I'm just way, way into. Definitely in um my wheelhouse. Some of my favorite topics. Um, and I also um had the delight of of um getting to interview um an exceptionally bright young woman, June Gruber, who works in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and I, I took some classes of hers online and and was um, really um, blown away by them and, uh, and was fortunate enough to get to interview her when I was through Boulder um, a few months ago. Uh, in this episode, we talk about Reading um, emotions on faces, we talk about um, the dark side of happiness, uh, we talk about um, uh, possibly some of the functions of depression, we talk about me breaking my feet, we talk about having dreams and, and goal setting and, and some of the stuff going on in the, in the head that's driving our, our behavior and our pursuits of happiness. And uh, and you'll have to listen all the way through to hear about the cruelest experiment in the entire world. This was a very 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 fun episode. Um, if you guys don't like this one, I I don't know what what to tell you. This, I think this one is uh, very representative of uh, what I want the podcast to be, and of course it will uh, keep growing and getting better. But I think that this was. Um, this, uh, we're off to a very good start. I hope you guys are enjoying this. Little side note um, I, I, I'm not, I recorded these episodes in a different order than which I'm playing them. Um, the order in which I'm playing them has to do with a bunch of reasons that are um, not worth, ta- they're way too boring to talk about. So uh, sometimes I reference someone that you haven't yet heard because I'm saving that episode because I already did a Uh, episode on comedy or something like that so anyhow i just wanted to throw that out there and thank you guys once again for listening Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. And I am here today in Boulder, Colorado, talking to uh, June Gruber in her office. And I am pronouncing that right, correct? Yeah. Um, And that's one of those questions that I should ask ahead of time. Um, And uh, I I know June, she actually, uh, we were set up by... um, Peter McGraw, who you just heard in the last podcast. And she is, um, I'm a big fan of her work, which I found online. Uh, She's the director of something called the Experts in Emotion interview series, which you can go online and find. And there's also a free online course in human emotion, which she did at Yale University, which is um, an absolutely tremendous, resource. And I've been learning so much. And um, even things that I thought I already knew about, I, I learned a lot. And then the opposite point is things that I knew nothing about were explained very clearly. And it uh, was very easy to understand. So uh, welcome, June. Thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. Oh, this podcast. podcast. Um, so first and foremost, I, I do have to say, well, I had a couple things that I wanted to start with. One, all of your research into emotion, do you feel like it has made you more mindful of your own emotions?
1: That's a great question. So does studying emotion, I guess you're asking, change the kind of emotional being you are? Um, Absolutely. I don't think it would be possible to delve into something as intimate as emotions without it changing who you are. Sometimes for the better, sometimes, I don't know if I'd say, maybe for the worse, when you overthink your emotions. Um, But I think one of the things that it's helped me become a lot better at is being aware of my emotions. Just what what are the signs you look for to know you're even beginning to feel an emotion? And when you are feeling one, how do you know when it's gone too far or when it's the right kind of emotion for that situation? So I guess I would say I've become a lot more aware when I'm feeling things and a lot more aware... Of when they do and don't help me, you know, in everyday life.
2: Do you feel like studying emotion has, uh, when you experience um, negative emotions, it it makes it maybe not so bad because for you, you can be like, oh, this is kind of interesting. This is this is work. This is giving me insights into what I do. Have you experienced that at all?
1: Totally. I mean. It's impossible to, like, study something like emotion without using your own experience. And some people say that, you know, emotion researchers, we are always scientists. Like, you can't turn that scientist button off. So it's not only like when you're in the lab watching other people experience emotions, but, of course, when you yourself are feeling something, you kind of stop and pause and sort of almost start collecting information as you go. Um, so, you know, I remember times I felt nervous or anxious and I'll be watching like what's happening to my heart rate in my body. Like, am I blushing? Um, you know, what kind of thoughts are going through my mind? Um, and sometimes that's a really good thing because you can gain information. But like I was saying earlier, sometimes you can overthink your emotions too. So you want to be careful not to always have that kind of scientist mindset on and just be human and, and feel things like every other person, you know, in the world too.
2: Right. Um, so what what uh what kind of emotions are you feeling <laughs> right now would you say
1: Have yeah you, am i
2: putting you on the spot no no that? no
1: that's totally fine um i i feel a lot of you know my emotions i'm feeling now are kind of common of, of the way i am so i right now i feel like the kind of what they talk about is like high arousal emotions right there's like the excitement the kind of high arousal positive and then High arousal, kind of the anticipation of the unknown. Some people would call that anxiety. Um, And I often find, you know, I sort of orbit between those two worlds, the high arousal positive and negative. But we all kind of land in different places, right? There's the high arousal um, or the low arousal positive. There's a lot of wonderful, calm, serene people in the world. Um, And there's also the low arousal negative folks who have more of the lethargy, depression. And so it's this kind of little grid that you can kind of point where you are on that grid and I find now today and probably most of the time I'm always somewhere in the high arousal realm for for better or worse I guess
2: that's that's a wonderful way to put uh, the anticipation of the unknown is the best way I've ever heard someone (laughs) describe uh anxiety that's um uh, that's a good way to articulate I ask because right now one I'm excited um that that you're on here and I'm excited about this project that I'm doing and I'm also uh, as well a little bit anxious I'm a little nervous because you have a, um, a, per- a particular skill set that actually makes me a little bit nervous which is um, you are actually trained on recognizing um, emotions and, and facial emotions in particular can you talk a little bit about that
1: Sure. And of course, I'm reading your emotions as well. know. <laughs> <laughs> What's this saying? What's this face saying? I see a Duchenne smile, which is a signal of genuine enjoyment, actually. <laughs> um, and that's signaled by not only are the corners of your lips being raised, but they call them crow's feet around your eyes. When you raise your cheeks, you see these little marks near your eyes. And it's those two things together that signal, you know, like a genuine smile as opposed to a fake smile. All right, um,
2: I just tried to take a picture I'll post <laughs> on the site, what I tried to capture that, Duchesne.
1: Uh, smile. You, Go you got it. Yeah, no, so the what you're talking about, it's called the Facial Action Coding System or FACS, and it was developed by Paul Ekman, who's a professor um, at UCSF down in San Francisco. And what he was really interested in trying to understand are what are the kind of facial configurations, the, the muscle units in our face that make up all the emotions that we seem to know so well, sort of what are the muscular patterns that make for a s- smile like what you just did, fear, sadness, disgust, anger. And some people now have been studying things like compassion and awe and gratitude in the face. It's amazing that you can actually pick up these emotions in the face. And the way that you get trained to do this um, is, is pretty time intensive and you never kind of look at the face, same, face the same way again. Um, It involves 80 to 100 hours of training where you're literally sitting there watching one to two second snapshots of someone quickly, you know, showing a fleeting expression of emotion. It's over, bam, and you have to code it. And you code it for what are called action units, which are basically little, you can think of it as little bundles of muscles that contract or don't contract when you're moving your face around And for example, when we smile, what we talked about now, that's called an action unit 12, which is pulling the corners of your lips up, and an action unit number six, which is pulling your cheeks up that makes those nice little crow's feet around your eye. So you learn to detect all these subtle muscle movements in the face. Um, And some of them are very, very subtle to where you almost can't see them with like just sort of the bare eye. You have to really look closely. Um, and you spend hours just learning what the face is and learning all these subtle ways that muscles can move in your face to create so many different kinds of emotions. It's pretty amazing.
2: That is, I mean, yeah. that that seems like a skill that everyone, I'm sure, would want to have. Is it, is it training that anyone could do or is this very, you need to, how did you get the training. Where did you go?
1: Where on the street did it?
2: Yeah, no, No, (laughs) I'm just wondering, is is there like an online thing that you can, it seems like a cool superpower to have. I'm just wondering if other people can train to do this.
1: So yeah, anyone can get this superpower. You can (laughs) just like Google fax coding system or fax training and you'll find it. And they send you a CD that has the instruction manual and some sample photos and videos and you practice for as long as you need, which is usually about 100 hours, no joke, and then you're sent a test that you have to take. And the test isn't very expensive, maybe $20, and it involves what sounds like not a lot of um, test material. It's 30-something, again, one- to two-second videos. Um, But I would say it probably takes a good 20 hours to take the test because you're really moving frame by frame and looking for contractions of these different muscles in the face. And once you pass the test, you get a nice little handy certificate that says you're a certified fax coder. Um, So anyone can do it. And in fact, there's been increasing applications of using this fax coding system in all sorts of ways. Um, Some are sort of scientifically grounded and some aren't. But for example, people have begun um, using this to detect when someone is lying, for example.
2: Didn't he, um, oh shoot, what's his name? Paul Ekman, yeah. He was a consultant on the show Lie to Me.
1: That's right. And that's based exactly off of this coding system. Um, people have also begun, I've heard using it in airports as, um, security screens to look for. I couldn't even tell you some sort of micro expressions of emotions, um, that should signal, you know, passengers who may be potential terrorists or not and things like that. I don't think you can get it all from the system, but you can certainly get, you know, muscle movements in the face that correspond with emotions that can be useful for all kinds of questions. Um, we, I've even seen applications of this for chimps. There's a thing called Chimp Facts where you can learn to code facial expressions of emotions in chimpanzees um, and in babies, too. They have baby facts. So there's all kinds of different varieties of it, too.
2: Um, that's uh, that's amazing. And at the same time, it, it, do, you, do you get a response? Like sometimes do people get a little nervous around you knowing that you can kind of read what they're thinking in a way or expressing emotionally or or is this maybe I'm maybe maybe this is like often because I'm a comedian people will be like oh I bet you're making fun of us right now and I'm like no I'm not I'm just a regular (laughs) person hanging out so maybe I'm asking you kind of a right question but no
1: I get asked that a lot and I think anyone who's in the field of psychology or studies emotions gets asked all the time, can you read my mind? And I would say, I'm doing that right now. No, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't think it it changes the way you interact with people in your everyday life. I think the one thing it can give you that's helpful is being able to be more sensitive to noticing signs of emotion in others, um, more subtle signs. Um, but, you know, otherwise I think you're just like any other person on the street. You can just kind of pick up when someone might be feeling a small amount of an emotion or an emotion they're trying not to express too much. You might just be more sensitive to it. And in a way, I think that can make you more compassionate to other people, you know, in ways that they don't have to always tell you what they're feeling. You might pick up a little bit of it at least better than you would have before.
2: Emboldened your sense of empathy toward others. And uh, do do you think it makes people watching more interesting for you then? Or is that something you were always interested in or... I imagine yeah. it's something you have to spend a lot of time doing.
1: Yeah, I think it's made the human face a lot more interesting. I don't think I appreciated just how many different like action units, so to speak, or kind of patterns of muscles on the face could move in all these wild ways that could make up not only emotions but all kinds of facial expressions we make. And I think for me, I just thought, wow, the human face is Incredibly complex um, in a way I think I had taken for granted before.
2: It is. Um, it's interesting with like with just the future of where that technology is heading and being able to break everything down and mm-hmm. you know maybe eventually we'll have our, in our Google glasses we'll be looking at someone and then our Google glasses will be giving us a readout on that person's emotional state at that time or you know maybe if they're lying.
1: No, I mean, in some ways, when you say that, you know, it sounds like, oh, that must be some like wild kind of sci-fi futuristic view of the world. But what's crazy is that it's not so far away. So there's actually computer programs now. Um, my colleagues and I were looking at these recently that can take a video of a human face of you talking and me talking and based upon the sort of principles of this coding system, actually code these these same, um, you know, configurations in the face and give you a readout it they're not perfect yet but they're like moving along that direction to where you no longer have to have human beings watching other human beings to gauge what emotion is being expressed you can have computers so to speak watching and coding expressions um and it's out there already i would
2: i would love for you to i mean i wish you could take like a, a five minute um you know one of my late night sets or something like that look at it and be like, oh, here's where you got a little nervous <laughs> or, or here you were laughing at yourself there, here you were faking a smile. And um, are you able to break down that sort of thing with, with a fair amount of accuracy? Or are computers able to?
1: Both can, actually. So, yeah, I mean, we've looked at videos of where people are laughing and we look for coding subtle signs of distress in the face. So you see like people's eyebrows will come together and furrow and that's like a a sign of distress. And maybe you're trying not to show it, but this is sort of the the principle behind detecting lying. Even when we try our best not to show certain things in the face, they still leak out in some way, even if it's really subtle. And so we would look at your videos and say, hey, look, there I see like a subtle sign of distress in his face. I wonder if he might have been feeling nervous then. And we could ask you and you could tell us if that might have been the truth.
2: That's interesting. I do feel like... Often um, when I meet people, I can get a sense of um, of what their insecurities are because people often tend to kind of lead with their insecurities and kind of try to make up for mm-hmm. what their insecurities um, might be, and I don't know if it's kind of along those same lines or if you, if you yeah, in a way same.
1: like you try to. Lead with something that maybe you're most vulnerable about, but in a way that you try to kind of cover it up or reshape it in a new way.
2: Like uh, you'll you'll see a guy on um on a, on a motorcycle in like a biker gang or something, and he's wearing cut off sleeves, um, because to him being tough and having big muscles yeah. is a very important thing, even though he himself doesn't have. Any, any muscle, he might have like flabby arms or whatever, and he's the last person that should be wearing that sort of thing. I see that sort of thing a lot. Um,
1: I think we see a lot of that too when it comes to what you and I were talking about, which is emotion. Sometimes you find that the people who seem to put the most effort, I guess, into trying to appear happy, right, whether that's smiling or laughing, um, sometimes that extra effort gives you a bit of a sign that maybe – that's, like you're saying, their biggest vulnerability. They're not actually all that happy, you know, on the inside. And there's even some really interesting scientific work that suggests that's the case, that the people who try the most to appear happy and pursue happiness are those that are actually sometimes the most vulnerable and even sometimes experiencing depression. So
2: This is a big part of your work, isn't it? This um, kind of the downside, or I'll let you say it, (laughs) however. I'm just going to butcher it, but... But um, the the idea of of having um, kind of too high of expectations for happiness in life and yeah um,
1: yeah so um, what I tell my colleagues is I study disturbances in positive emotion and what my colleagues tell me they tease me and say I study the dark side of happiness so um, what I try to look at is just a more kind of balanced perspective on what happiness is. And like any sort of emotional state, there's times and ways in which it's really helpful for us and makes our lives healthier and more um, fulfilled. But there's like anything in life, there's often two sides and there's ways in which it's not always to our advantage. And so um, we look at themes or different ways that positive feelings like happiness don't always, um, you know, are not always in our best interest. And so one of the things you're talking about is some work where we've looked at um, the pursuit of happiness, right? So especially in the U.S., this is something that people do a lot of and place a high value on.
2: Lots and lots of shelves at the bookstore. Um,
1: totally, totally. And you and I are sitting right here and I look at some of the books on the shelf that I've bought that are like The How of Happiness or The Happiness Project or, you know, things like, um, I don't know if we look over there. Let's see, um, just books oh, called I, it's Happiness. It's like all of them. <laughs> I could just start
2: reading all of your Right? All your books, and 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 some of these are um, are academic books, and then our other ones kind of more self helpy. You're you're kind of looking at what the um, kind of cultural um, uh, norms are.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there are some pop psych books out there um, because it's interesting to see what is the public looking for. You know, when we go to the bookstore, I guess now we don't go to bookstores anymore. We go online and like go to look for books. What are the kinds that people are really looking for? And the first thing is that there's just tons out there. Like I couldn't even count the number of books that are supposed to in some way like make you feel happier by reading them, you know? And so it's interesting though because you wonder like, well, people spend all this money buying books, going to workshops. Um, What is this doing for them? And so and work with one of my good friends and colleagues Iris Mouse who's a psychologist at um, UC Berkeley.
2: She spells her name the same way that I do and I pronounce it moss and she pronounces it mouse and um, and I think she is correct. She's <laughs> she's from Germany so I'm she like, is, "Oh, yeah. I guess I've been saying my last name wrong my entire life." <laughs>
1: live and learn right yeah, yeah i never it's funny you said my name i don't think i say my name correctly either and it's also <laughs> german i asked german people to tell me how to say my name
2: <laughs> but, but it, i didn't mean to interrupt no. I, iris and
1: yeah so iris and i um we looked at the extent to which people um self-report trying to pursue happiness right like So saying um, yes to items like feeling happy is really important to me or I, you know, go out of my way to, you know, spend time on things I think will make me happy or I put a lot of energy into pursuing happiness, these kinds of things, right? And you find that people who endorse those kinds of items are actually those that are kind of, I guess you could say like paradoxically less happy and particularly in situations that you think would make them happy. So Like, we have people watch, you know, happy films in the lab. And it's those people that are the ones that are happiness seekers that feel less happy even watching a happy film. So there's something about being so obsessed with trying to find happiness that either sets people up for disappointment or maybe kind of what you're alluding to, which is that, like, maybe those people who are trying so hard to find it, um, maybe there's some... some
2: asking something? Yeah. Well, well, do you think that um, that happiness or or many of the pleasurable feelings have to do with kind of um i don't know if you use the term flow or cognitive ease um uh, whereas um wh- whereas once you start putting a lot of mental effort into like i know there's been tests where they give people really tasking um problems and you'll see their face frown a little bit and uh, mm-hmm. when they're recording them on camera and um, I, I think uh, like the thinking fast and slow mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. book and, or putting like the pencil in the mouth to make you, I don't yeah. know, what do you think of No of research?
1: I mean, what you were saying that I thought was interesting is maybe when we're trying too hard cognitively um, for something, right? Maybe it's a math problem or maybe it's trying to find happiness that that's going to, that's not going to put us, or I guess it's like kind of, antithetical to actually feeling happy and at ease, right? When you're trying so hard for it. Right. Whereas
2: when when we are actually happy and actually experiencing that, usually it's kind of passing right through us. We aren't really even consciously aware of. I mean, when you really lose yourself in like laughter or something like that, you kind of acknowledge after the fact, um, after you've already experienced it, how, how much fun that was. Um, or like a roller coaster ride, or any of that. You're, you're not really, if you're on a roller coaster, you're not thinking like, okay, I need to try to have a good time right now, and maybe if I smile real big and have a positive attitude, I will have a better time and enjoy And it, you're just kind of letting it go, and you're kind of in that um, flow. And I, th- I feel like a lot of those um, positive emotions aren't aren't, terribly effortful when they're actually happening
1: i think yeah i think you put that perfectly and in many ways you know it's you i often look at children's emotions right because they're they're so present focused right and so sort of unfiltered and you know not overly kind of cognizing about them so i think that's exactly it and when you asked me at the beginning like You know, for someone who studies emotion, you know, what are some of the drawbacks? I think it can be overthinking your emotions in the moment and almost kind of, you know, destroying them in a way from what they were in their purest form.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't know if now's the best time to get into this, but um, I'll give you an opposite point, which is um, just I've been talking about my broken feet way too much on this (laughs) podcast because it... Yes. To me, it's, um, it's just an interesting case study to have different people that research different things um, use their approach on kind of um, what I've went through. Just because I've always... Uh, you know, when I was in school, I was always like, well, how are you going to use this? Some of these like bizarre history facts, memorizing what year a thing happened. And, and I think a lot of people experience that. And uh, science, well, when am I going to use that? When am I going to use chemistry? And what I'm trying to do with this podcast is is um, kind of demonstrate how a lot of work like yours can really help people shape their lives and make better decisions and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things, because uh, do you meditate at all?
1: I, I try to. Um, I would I say I'm an amateur started. at best. I'm yeah. an amateur <laughs> at best. I just
2: started earlier this year. And the reason I bring it up is because it's kind of um, what I was just learning about and I, and I don't know much about it, is kind of observing your emotions and kind of letting them pass and just being more mindful and kind of separating yourself in a way, but not forcing it or trying too hard. Well, when I broke my feet, I was ha- happy that I had meditated mm-hmm. so much because I really was able to get a lot of distance from my pain and kind of observe what I was experiencing um, from a very rational point of view, which made it made um, made the suffering far less than had I just had a primal this sucks. I have broken feet. Now I have to crawl down a mountain for two hours. (laughs) Uh, And um, and so in that regard, it it has helped. So maybe the negative is that you if you think too much about being happy, you're not going to be happy. But I think you can also think your way out of um, negative states that you might not have any control over.
1: I think that's right. And there's actually some really nice work in the field of emotion regulation, sort of how we try to manage or change our emotions that looks at exactly what you're saying. Like, how can you think about your emotions in a way that changes them for for your own health? And so what you're talking about reminds me too of what's called cognitive reappraisal. So something crappy happens to you. Can you try to see it in a different light so it's not so bad, right? Which is, you know, thinking, well, you know, it could have been worse in this way or, you know, here's some parts where it wasn't as bad as, you know, I mean, some of
2: my thoughts were like, this is really interesting. What's happening? I mean, that that probably sounds very, very bizarre to listeners. But there was like, part of me was able to go. This is a unique experience (laughs) that (laughs) very rarely do people get to experience this. True. And I will I will be gaining a lot of information onto the psychology of suffering and possibly have some material and 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 all of those things did come true i was able to it really did give me a lot of insight into a lot of different things and um and also i got a lot of material from it but in that moment i was able to analyze it and reappraise it like you said and it really uh i mean it's hard to I, I didn't have a control experiment to kn- fortunately <laughs> to know what the difference was between me having that information and not having it, but I do feel like it absolutely helped. Um.
1: And also, you said you did something that there's tons of scientific background on now supporting, which is you know being more mindful, sort of accepting what's happened to you, you know, you broke your feet. But then also kind of being present with it, sort of like, well, what are the sensations that are happening right now as opposed to getting stuck in the past? Oh, I shouldn't have jumped in that way or getting caught up in the future, like worrying, you know, the unknown. Like, how am I going to get down this hill? Like, what's going to happen next? Am I going to have to go to the hospital? Like, you were just kind of in the moment. And when you're in the moment, it's a whole lot less overwhelming than also trying to simultaneously live in the past and the future, too, right?
2: It was. It, and, it, and it made it more... If I had to name um, like a broad um, emotion to describe the whole experience, um, the kind of resounding kind of feeling was just irritation (laughs) more than anything. I was like irritated with myself for making this choice to jump off a thing too high, Uh, irritated with my buddy for having this stupid idea, and, and just irritated that I was like, Okay, I have to crawl down this thing for two hours, and this is just what I have to do, and it's gonna suck, and and but but that's better. That's a much better feeling than horrible horrible pain. Yeah, and it did separate me from it. You know, it, 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 since we're talking, and I don't mean to talk about my dumb feet all day. Um, <laughs> I annoy myself, I, it, and then I have to tell everyone
1: what, what went
2: wrong. Anyhow, this is something that I found. This is what I thought was psychologically the most interesting part of it and i think you could maybe shed some light on why this happened so um i'm not i enjoy life but i'm not like a crazy upbeat um person i'm not like wildly jumping around all of the time super happy and um and and uh, and i have days that i don't really feel like getting out of bed and and It's funny, I'll like wake up from a nightmare where I'm like being murdered, wake up, and then be like, oh, thank goodness that's not happening. And then take in like reality and be like, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go back into that nightmare (laughs) rather than existence. Um, And I'm not trying to get dark, I just think it's an interesting um, thing. Well, anyhow, the moment that I broke my feet, uh, what was the most interesting part? was that there was this very small part of me, it was very painful, but there was this very small part of me that had just never felt better. There was this small part that was just like, I want to live! And and if I were a robot with no feelings, I, I would have just went from, um, you know, wh- whatever my life satisfaction was or whatever, I I just made it an objectively... Um, uh, I, I was just objectively worse off. Um, my my life had just diminished measurably in that moment. Yet I was more excited about life than I. And a robot wouldn't really feel that way. Um, do, do you know? Yeah, where I'm going
1: I mean, it makes me think about a few things. I mean, one of them is I'm sure there was some adrenaline rush happening, of course, <laughs> endorphins, but, <laughs> which yeah. is like
2: what heroin replicates, and so there's that kind of
1: totally um, that high, but. The other thing it makes me think about a bit is that, um, you know, part of what um, seems to lead people to report having sort of a more meaningful life and feeling more satisfied is not just sort of having the same kinds of, you know, kind of moderate emotions we have on a day-to-day basis, kind of feel happy, kind of feel disappointed, kind of feel irritated. But um, it's about like really expanding the diversity of feelings that you have this this idea we've called emotional diversity and that the more you can kind of push your boundaries and sort of have a lot of different I guess colors on your palette so to speak um, there's something about this that seems to lead people to you know self report greater well-being and even it's associated with greater physical well-being so I, I don't know just one of the things you said like you probably experienced these emotions you hadn't experienced before and something about that felt really good And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? We want to experience a range of emotions in the sort of finite time we have here, right, on this planet. And there's something about that that's really reinforcing to us. People talk about the same kind of thing, too, when they go through all kinds of traumatic events, even, that there was something meaningful they got out of these new emotional insights they had, maybe when someone passed away. People also talk about this with, like, childbirth. It's crazy painful, right? But there's some kind of emotional experience they had through that, that, like, made them feel better.
2: Right. And and part of me, well, what I've thought about since is I was wondering, uh, maybe from an evolutionary perspective, um, what kind of drives we're having. Because why do we, um, you know, this is uh, uh, maybe just a, a quick explanation for the listeners. Why 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 do we have these silly feeling things that get in the way of this pristine logic and rationale that makes all of these calculated correct decision, and then these feelings come in and kind of muck everything up. So why, why do we have these feelings?
1: I mean, I would say that, I mean, it's long thought that like emotions and reason are somehow like uh, opposing each other in some sort of battle, but I would say we have emotions because they help us think, and actually certain kinds of emotions help us think in different ways. So emotions give us information about the world. They're telling us something's important in some way. That might be good or bad or fearful, but it's, there's something important going on. It's like a, what people call a salience detector, like a little, you know, I don't know, like a little alarm saying, hey, pay attention. And I think when it comes to the way we think, emotions actually help us, right? So they, people find that um, when you're in a sad mood, it actually facilitates thinking about things in more detail, kind of going through maybe a really precise kind of mathematical problem, for example, and when you feel happy or in these more positive states, it sort of helps you sit back and think more creatively. So, I would argue we have emotions because they tell us important things about the world around us. And I would say without emotions, we wouldn't be able to think. You know, they actually help us think better.
2: Right. I because um, I wanted to talk about that with, um, with with some of the because a lot of times it seems like we live in a society where where Almost and i i don't even i'm I'm not as fond as of some of the sociological and blaming culture for everything necessarily, but um it does seem like uh, in the American culture it's a lot of people kind of running from these icky negative feelings and people feeling like this is uh like like something that's gone wrong with their with their brain, like this 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 feeling they're not supposed to be experiencing is something that they need to kind of run from. You know, I mean, for me personally, I feel like I um, I don't drink anymore, but I I feel like I spent um, many years kind of uh, drinking away um, my problems or attempting to, um, often without uh, very good results. And often creating more problems. And I, I feel like once I, once I quit drinking and actually had to work through some of those problems, many of them weren't nearly, they weren't that bad. They weren't that mm-hmm. big of a deal. I just never actually sat down and addressed them. And I've seen um, some research with um, some like um, um, depression work of, of just having people sit down and write out their problems and people actually feeling... Better having actually sat and focused on what was making them feel bad rather than distracting themselves.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's funny, like in some ways, how much effort we spend trying to avoid feeling things and the the lengths we go to when it would be, as you're saying, a whole lot easier just to feel your feelings. And if there's, you know, evidence that shows that when you just sit with your emotions. They resolve themselves quite quite simply, you know. Even some of the most intense experiences we've had that feel negative, they don't last forever. And if you simply sit with them, um, and what people talk about in this one tradition of psychotherapy called DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, you see that your emotions are a wave. They're going to peak, but guess what? Waves always come down. And so, the more we can just sit with our emotions, almost exposing ourselves to our feelings. The quicker we can work through them instead of spending what we all do, which is a lot of money and time and as you know you pointed out what can feel sometimes like wasted energy to avoid them or get around them or cover them up um, because we're afraid that feeling them is going to be too much for us
2: right i mean and and I mean these feelings like you said are kind of um, meant to help us navigate this yeah. this puzzle of life and um because, it, I mean, I mean, for for example, I've been I've been saying this on stage of just you know the the first month or so, and I had to I had to cancel all of my work, and I I couldn't care for myself, and I had to move in with my parents so they could help me out. For it was miserable. Uh, I'm 34 years old living in my parents' basement with two broken feet, and it was depressing. And uh, but. Um, uh, the thing is, is that maybe it should be. May- maybe I'm not supposed to be sitting in my parents' basement with two broken feet, going, "Oh yeah, I'm killing it right now." <laughs> no, no need to adjust any future decisions in my life. And um, and I I think that is maybe an important thing that people are missing out on by running from negativity.
1: It, yeah, exactly. I mean, so what is? The and I'm sad- not trying
2: to romanticize. Um, no. Negative emotions, either, but
1: no. But I think that's exactly it. They're telling you something. So what my depression have been telling you in that moment when you're in your ba- the basement of your parents' house, telling you that you lost something, right? Something really important, which is like walking on your feet, right? And, you know, in a way to really have that that message get conveyed to you super clearly, so that you're you know more vigilant in the future to not break your feet again, right? If you just felt like, you know, euphoric, like, woo, on top of the world, maybe you'd then just not think twice next time yeah, so you could just, jump off just, something high.
2: I mean, I did, I feel like some of these self-help <laughs> books, that's like, you're always supposed to be triumphing over adversity all of the time. It's like, it, according to some of these books, I'm just supposed to be crutching back up on this, on this ledge. what are you doing? You, I'm trying to reinvigorate my positive outlook, you know? <laughs> um, I, um... Uh, so it, it's it's just it, it's such a um, emotions are just such an interesting puzzle and I just feel like I can learn so can I throw one other personal like case study at you just because it's kind of the opposite thing and, and maybe you could help explain I'm just doing this for the three, free therapy in case, <laughs> in case you haven't picked up on it um, I, I, I think making yeah. a personal helps uh, people attach to um, some of these ideas but um, so let me give you an opposite um, situation. I wanted to be a comedian my whole life. When I was young, I started watching uh, Comedy Central and I got obsessed with the, these Comedy Central Presents, these half-hour specials. And, and that was like, man, if I had one of those, that would be it. That would be my big dream. And that would be all that I ever need in life. And, and, um, and I started comedy 11 years ago. I caught some breaks very early on. I've had a pretty fortunate career. And then I find myself five years later. I have one of these Comedy Central present. My dreams came true. I mean, very few people get to say that in life. My everything I ever dreamed of came true. And this and then I, I had like a bar rented, and an after party, and you know, like my my girlfriends there, and all my family's there. A bunch of high school people flew out to New York, and some people that I wasn't even super good friends with, like just being super supportive of me, and all these. Comedy Central bigwigs are there patting me on the back, and I have all these comic friends. And, I mean, you couldn't imagine a better uh, night than that. And, there again, there was just this tiny, tiny um, feeling at the same time that was like, huh. Uh, it was just like this. It was this odd little small um, depressive feeling that, that you wouldn't expect um, Face value in a situation like that.
1: Was it a feeling of like that's it, or
2: it was very much yeah. a feeling of that's it? Of maybe my expectations were yeah. too high. I don't want to step on what you you
1: may. No, you be. know, it's it makes me think. There's this work by Dan Gilbert, who's um, a professor uh, of psychology at Harvard, that's called affective forecasting. Which basically, if you break it down, it's just like how good are we at predicting our future emotional selves? And we're actually pretty bad at it. We're really bad at predicting how we're going to feel about things. And most of us, what we tend to do is probably exactly what um, you did in that situation, is we overshoot. Like, So if I was going to predict how happy I might feel if I won some, some award I was working really hard on, I would probably overestimate how happy I was going to be. Um, but that's important because it motivates you, right? It makes you work really, really hard. Like you're saying to achieve your dreams, but what you find once you get to your dreams, if you're lucky enough is that you're probably not going to feel in the moment as happy as you thought you were. And it's this like weird conundrum of human beings. Like why do our, why is our idea of our future emotional selves so over exact such like an over exaggerated kind of caricature of what our actual selves are going to be, um, and it can lead to disappointment, but yet we keep doing it. And we like if I asked you how you were going to feel about something next week you're looking forward to, and I had you rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy you were going to be, I bet you would still can continue to do the same right. thing, right? Um, and it seems to motivate us that we need that extra little push to think something's going to be a little bit better or a lot better than it actually is to get us moving
2: and do you think and i might be overreaching with this a little bit but do you do you think that um possibly in our um kind of evolutionary past um that that uh, this, this drive may have been more important because there really wasn't ever enough there was there was never going to be a day that our ancestors would have everything that they were ever going to have and let you you wouldn't win the lottery back then. You would always have to continue uh, hunting or you know, yeah. looking for new mates or whatever it might be. And maybe we aren't psychologically prepared to um, comprehend what it's like to have uh, $30 million a year or something like that, thinking, um, you know, these sports stars must be so happy because look at all the golden toilets they have or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then why are they? Look at them. They keep on spending and now they're broke and they wouldn't stop spending. Why why isn't it enough?
1: Yeah, I mean in a way it's like as human beings we tolerate wanting better than having, right? Um and so that's exactly it. I mean, not only sort of back when we were on the savanna like we were always wanting things um and we probably would never have all of them, but even you know as you're saying most people out there today rarely do they have all the things they want, and so there's a sense in which maybe that's our default to want things, um, and wanting pushes us to work really hard, to be really vigilant of like dangers, to, you know, just try really hard to get all the resources we need to survive. And you know, you look at people who seem then to have everything, um, you know, millionaire celebrities, and yet people are perplexed when they hear of. Some of these individuals, you know, committing tragic acts like ending their lives, like you think of Robin Williams or someone like that, right. and what what might be going on, um, and it's a complicated answer. There's no one simple answer, and every person's different, but you might wonder if, to some extent, once we achieve our dreams, we and we don't have the wanting there anymore, it's hard for us to know what to do, right?
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um, hmm. Um, now I want to sit and think about that for a little while, but, um, uh, I need to continue asking questions. Um, yeah, I mean, what I like the most and I, I mean, what's been very enlightening to me is, is just understanding how emotions drive us and guide us and, and possibly when you, um, I mean, possibly another reason why, um, You might feel a little depression after a dream comes true as you also realize, oh, this isn't just, you can't just kick your feet up. now. you still have to keep on doing things. And so you might have to reassess what your goals are um, because this big dream Mm -hmm. isn't going to do it for you. Um, You know, you don't get to retire. And, And in the same sense, feeling really good when you break your, I mean, pain's an easy one pain go you feel pain to hey don't stand on your feet right now you know this is the bad time to stand on your feet we're going to make this hurt so you don't want to do that um but that why i would feel so amazing is i mean possibly if ever there was a time to really have a deep appreciation for life and to be motivated to want to survive and live, it would be when you've just yourself and have some work to do to get down off of a mountain
1: that's right that's exactly right but I I like the point you brought up too sort of how overwhelming it might be to completely reassess your values and goals once you achieve the big goals you had and that that's almost like reinventing yourself and that that might be invigorating to some people but it could certainly be kind of like stymieing to other people and lead to feeling depressed like I don't know what to do now right
2: I felt that way a lot. I mean, but that's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. It's like, mm. you know, you get good as a comedian and, you know, you do, and things are going okay. And then it's like, oh, what what now? What else could I do? And and um, and um, I feel like those kind of feelings have driven me to be like, oh, you know what would be a fun idea? And, you know, doing things like this and pursuing um other adventures. Um, And, but at the same time, uh, what i found interesting about your class was that i i i haven't taken all of it yet um but uh i i don't know how far along i am but one of the more recent classes was talking about um the um cultural differences in emotion was one of the things that i found the most surprising um so far i i guess i i hadn't really come across too much of that Before. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's, I think that stuff's super interesting as well because you think of emotions the way we've been talking about them from this evolutionary perspective is like, you know, being born with like eyes and ears, like these things that all humans have, you know, that you wouldn't expect to radically differ across cultures. Um, But there's some really neat work that suggests that. Culture really shapes the kinds of emotions you experience and the kinds of emotions you want to experience, right? So, I mean, for example, uh, there's work showing that people in different cultures want to feel different things. This is work by um, her name's Jeannie Sai. She's at Stanford, and she finds that people in countries like the U.S., very Western cultures, really want to feel what she calls the high arousal positive emotions, excitement, joy, enthusiasm, like this is what we want to feel. And when we have a big discrepancy between how we actually feel and how we want to feel in that way, we end up feeling more depressed, right? But if you look at, she looks at countries, um, more Eastern cultures, um, China and the like, and finds that they they don't want to feel those kinds of emotions as much. They actually want to feel the low arousal states. They want to feel serene and content and calm. And in many ways, these two cultures, we set ourselves up for different kinds of lifestyles and activities to experience these different states. And it has a lot of implications, too, just for the pressures you feel.
2: And I mean, there's even um, there's even like different words that some cultures um, don't have necessarily. uh.
1: Yeah. I mean, like schadenfreude, for example, right? Like. We don't really have, I mean, we've sort of adopted that word in English, but we never have sort of feeling pleasure at another person's um, pain, right? So maybe there's someone who really didn't like you, (laughs) Sean, and they saw you break your feet, and they felt this sense of like, ah, that feels good watching him suffer, right? Um, We feel this people we may be jealous of, right, when they don't quite get the award or quite win the thing. We have this sort of pleasure at people that we feel – some sort of tension with or, you know, don't like necessarily.
2: Do you think that um I I sometimes think that maybe uh, how we experience um emotion might be shaped by our ability to articulate um emotions and I because I I feel like um and, and that can kind of shape our personalities as well. Um and th- this this might be the point where I go off the tracks and have no idea what I'm talking about, but um I feel like if you're say you're a little kid, like I grew up in the Midwest and um and I always felt like I was um a very a very kind of deep um thinker compared to what a lot of people were doing uh, seemingly. And and I I I often felt that um because I was a little more quiet and observing um things, I I might be like pensive. But I didn't know that was a word. People would just be like, "Are you sad right now?" And because people were saying that, I I was kind of like, "Well, this must be what sadness feels like." And and then and then that was becoming like sort of a feedback loop in a way, um, which
1: like self-fulfilling in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And, and and I wonder if if a lot of our experience and a lot of how our personalities are shaped are, are kind of like that, we get into these habits early on of like these emotional strategies that maybe worked when we were younger. Like, hey, don't, don't speak up for yourself because people around here don't agree with what you have to say. And then that turns you into a maybe a shy person when later on uh, you, that might not be to your advantage, but it's, it's now a habit.
1: You sound like someone who's a, like, trained psychotherapist. That's totally, I mean, that's so much of what people will go to therapy to do in a way is to unlearn habits, like, or ways that you manage your emotions or behave that were useful or at least made sense in response to your environment when you were young but that just aren't working anymore, right? And so people spend a lot of time and energy trying to reshape those habits. And I think the other point you said is is totally right on, too, about how our language shapes the very emotions we feel and don't feel, right? Um, that, you know, people, you even look at the degree to which people have just a few number uh, numbers of words for emotions or have like a lot. And they can just differentiate a thousand different states. And it seems like even their experience becomes more nuanced just by having words to label their emotions with. And even being able to label emotions with words that you didn't have before in turn, shapes your emotions. The better you are able to label all kinds of emotions, the less intense they feel. So all this goes to say is that I think our context, our cultural context, shapes a lot of who we are and, like, the way we respond and also can, like, change the very emotions you have if you simply, like, have words for them.
2: Um, that that's amazing I I have like one other question yeah. I wanted to ask you but it, it, you know what f- let's see if we have time for, first off um, because we need to wrap up uh, I need to uh, get you to your lab meeting um, first off uh, each week I have a, a guest plug a charity that they enjoy um, plug away yeah oh. I'm,
1: I'm all for sort of the National Humane Society I found as a psychologist as much as we spend time studying humans um I can't help but wonder about just the emotional lives of animals and wanting to protect them as much as we can.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And if you don't um, have the money to spare, you can also go and check out their local humane societies. You can volunteer your time. You can just go and play fetch with some animals that are cooped up in a kennel and and enjoy yourself while, uh, while um, helping out and doing a good thing. Um, so do we have two minutes quick it's um I, just the, the very last thing um and you can answer this quickly cuz it's 150 um i i just and this this is kind of the opposite of of cuz i asked you i started by asking you about reading emotion um you had a test where you uh, had people um, sing karaoke in front of a camera. They must not have known there's a camera there, correct? And then you had them watch uh, the video of them singing karaoke to no music. So question number one, what kind of a monster are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and two, what was this experience, uh, experiment all about?
1: Yeah, so we called this the cruelest experiment in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was a Tazer. Yeah, people came in and they were told this cover story that we're really interested in looking at how your body responds to music. So, you know, here's a karaoke screen. Here's (laughs) the the Beatles song, twist and shout, go right. And they, they, they're in a room by themselves and they just, they went for it. And then they're sitting there once it's done and the video plays back and it's just them. And you don't hear the background music, (laughs) nothing. And it was, I mean, it's like, it was to study embarrassment. Basically. We were trying to get people to be really self-conscious and, My God, it worked. Some people just, like, couldn't handle it. It was, um, you know, it was pretty painful. And then as the experimenter, it's, like, this vicarious embarrassment of, like, watching someone feel embarrassed. It was painful for everyone around. But what was really interesting about it is just, like, looking at what embarrassment is. And it's actually, like, a really important emotion. So it tells us when we've done something that's, like, a social faux pas and makes us, like, readily alert to it and, like, want to do things to, like, amend our behavior right and so we just want to understand like well what is that like
2: you know you know what's the most embarrassing being conspicuously embarrassed i feel like blushing makes me more embarrassed than whatever the initial embarrassment was
1: and that, and your body does this thing more, like all this blood flows to your cheeks and makes them bright red, so you do stand out more, and people do look at you more. When it's the very thing you don't want to be happening, right? In the that feedback,
2: moment. like what happens in a panic attack, sort yeah, of, but with embarrassment.
1: Totally. Um,
2: and and uh, I, the reason why I asked was, so do you think? So we talked about like the future of um, detecting emotion. What, what do you think about the future of eliciting emotion? Do you think? I mean, we could do a good thing and be like, uh, listen, everybody, you can do this great thing for animals and, and or maybe we could tell a sad story about a particular animal or something like that and, and elicit an emotion that drives people to donate and do a good thing. There could also be plenty of companies out there um, it, it kind of taking advantage and eliciting um, emotions to get us to buy their luxury yeah. vehicle or whatever we don't need.
1: Some people are doing that already. So, right, this information can be used for, like, good or or bad. And that's always one of the worries once you publicize some of these methods. Like, you don't always have the control how they're going to be used. Our hope is that, you know, we want to use this to motivate people to feel like healthier themselves, but also motivate them to do good things for the world around them. Animals, I've been talking with some colleagues of mine about how to use this to motivate environmentally sustainable behaviors, to get people to care about the environment, right? But yeah, you could use it to get someone to like buy a fancy car and people do some of this stuff where they even subliminally present information that you don't even necessarily notice was there.
2: It's it's a little scary because it's like we're getting so good at it. And like part of it's like, like even television, it's, it's like, how good is it going to get before we consider this a drug? Where it's like, I could benefit my my life by taking your class online, but Game of Thrones is on right now, and there's like a part of my brain that doesn't know that these dragons aren't real, and this is like a real, this is a legitimate threat, and what's going to happen with my sheep, and you know, if these dragons get out of control, and so I'm so I'm sucked into this rather than this. More effortful learning and things that might better my life. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's going to be a wild uh, future. I need to let you go. We are we are at the one hour mark. In uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You are a lovely person and wonderful to talk to. So bright, younger than I am, which makes me feel horrible about my accomplishments in life. Um, and uh, yeah, go to uh, uh, what's your website?
1: It's Gruber Pep Lab, so p e p l a b dot com,
2: and at on Twitter,
1: June Gruber.
2: All right, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. I thought this was a good one. I thought there's a lot of, spent um, uh, a lot of stuff that uh, led to a lot of interesting um, conversation topics for me just in um, a regular everyday life, just talking with people and uh, i hope you find that to be the case as well um that would uh, be cool if you guys could spread the word for me get some word of mouth going about what i'm doing in this podcast and um and please send me your feedback go to the here we are Podcast um, com website and you can go to click on ask a scientist and um, any any feedback that you have, hopefully I can address in a future episode and ask a scientist about um, or find a scientist that um, is uh, researching uh, whatever topics you guys are into. So check that out. Um, share this with everyone you know. I also want to do a special shout-out to my friend Mike Kaplan, who is a very funny comedian, and he uh, helped do the theme song for the show. Um so, uh, yeah, go and check out Mike Kaplan, who's one of my oldest friends um, in, in the comedy business. Probably about my oldest uh, friend in comedy. I met him when I moved to Boston. We write, we used to write together all the time, still do. Um, it's M Y Q, by the way, K A P L A N. You can go to Mike Kaplan.com, at Mike Kaplan on Twitter. Very smart guy, very wonderful human. And super funny dude. So, uh, check him out. And thank you guys again for listening to the show.
0: Are we? Yes. Where are we here? Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence
2: by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.